It is lovely to have you with us. We're, uh, for those of you who have been around for the last few weeks, we've been going through a series called The Scandal of Grace, uh, which I've really enjoyed. I think it's been wonderful. Um, it's been both hearing more of the story of all of these people in the Old Testament uh, and also unpacking all of their brokenness, of which the Bible does not hold back on. Uh, and uh, it is uh, no different with David today, who we're going through. Um, but we're going to begin with a little bit of a story. Um, occasionally, uh, Amy and I get a Now TV subscription for short periods of time, and we watch a ridiculous number of films we wouldn't normally watch. And one of those was a film recently called Central Intelligence. Has anyone seen that? It's, yeah, you shouldn't have done it. It's got the rock in. It's trashy. It's awful. Um, but I watched it because I was on holiday, and uh, I'd watched like five films in a row, so I was just uh, making a roll out of it. And it, it wasn't great, but, it, but bits of it that I found quite interesting, and it's going to illustrate my first point this morning really well. So um, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm talking it up. But there's a character called Calvin Joyner, who's at high school, and like every classic American um, high school uh, film, he's a bit of a hero. He's good at, like, everything. He's captain of everything. Everyone loves him. He's wonderful. And then you, you skip on about 20 years time and uh, he feels in a worldly sense a bit of a failure. Everyone thought he'd be brilliant. He, you know they have those awards for people who you think will achieve the most in life and he'd won all of them but seemed to be a bit of a failure. And uh, I think so sometimes we can, in a worldly sense, we, we see that, don't we? When we're growing up and we, we think either for ourselves or other people, man, they're going to succeed and go really far in life. But they just, they just don't turn out to be as we hoped. Um, and we see that not necessarily with David, but with Saul. And Saul is the first king of Israel. And just to, to paint the picture a little bit, just before Saul, we have um, the book of Judges. Some of you have read bits of the book of Judges. I have um, a graphic comic of the book of Judges. And it's like, it's really graphic. It's like, wow, wow, you guys do not hold back. Because the book of Judges is full of a lot of blood, a lot of sin, a lot of pain, a lot of war. It's chaos in the book of Judges. Some of you have opened it before and how on earth do I read this? It's got Samson, who was crazy. You've got Gideon, who like didn't trust God all the time and kept flip-flopping all over the place. And there's a bit of his life that's amazing when God uses him and then later on he screws it all up. And it's just chaos. And the Israelites cry out to God and they say, God, give us an earthly king like all of the other nations around us. And uh, Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, says, you have a king. His name is Yahweh. You have the king you need. And they're like, no, we want an earthly king, like all the nations around us. And so Samuel goes to God and, and, and says, God, what, what am I supposed to do? They, they have you, and yet they want an earthly king. And, and the Lord says, graciously, give them what they ask for. And so uh, a man named Saul is anointed. Um, and from the outside, just like Calvin Joyner in that trashy film, Central Intelligence, he has so much promise. He's strong, he's tall, he's commanding, he's probably got a big voice, <coughs> and he, he's a warrior, and people want to follow him, and he's very popular. But he turns out to be ultimately a bit of a failure, because on the inside, he's broken. On the inside, he's selfish, he doesn't obey God, he's, he sins against God, he directly disobeys what God calls him to do, and ultimately, he makes it about himself. He's full of rage and jealousy and bitterness. And um, he seems impressive for a while, but after a while you start to see this man is deeply, deeply flawed. 
And so Samuel goes to him and says this, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And what we see is that God is actually looking for a man after his own heart, who may not be impressive on the outside, but on the inside loves Jesus. In, on the inside is full of character. And so what we see as Saul declines as a leader, as a man of integrity, we start to see the rise of David. And um, I know as parents, uh, you're not supposed to have favourites. Right? I mean, you all do. But you're not supposed to have favourites, okay? Um, but in Hebrew culture, you did have favourites. And your favourite was always the eldest. And your least favourite was the youngest. And so we see that because a word comes to Samuel. Uh, and he says, of this certain family, I am going to anoint the next king. And so he goes to Jesse and says, Jesse, have you got any sons? And Jesse says, yes. And he brings out seven sons. And so, of course, Samuel, being a worldly man, begins with the eldest. Right, clearly, this will be the most important one. This will be the one that God wants to make, wants to make king. And he begins with the eldest. Nope, it's not him. And then the next one. Nope, not him. Were you sure? You're like, cause we've just passed the two most important sons. Surely it must be them. Nope, keep on going. And he keeps on going, gets the seventh. And uh, God says, no, it's not him either. And so he asks God, um, what, is, am I missing something? And so he goes to Jesse. He says, Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, I have one other son, but not only is he my youngest, he's also out being a shepherd, right? Which was another thing that was looked down upon in that culture. He was a shepherd. It, like, who cares about him? He surely cannot be the next king of Israel. But the Lord says, yeah, that's him. So he brings in David. And he's uh, not really impressive. He's a guy who likes to sing, you know, so maybe not the biggest warrior in the world, right? So, uh, like, from a worldly point of view, this is not going well. But let me repeat that scripture that I referenced earlier on. This is what the Lord said to Samuel. Do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. It's talking about Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God sees in David a man after his own heart. And we start to see this outworked. Not only is David, unlike Saul, willing to be overlooked, willing to, be, um, to wait for God's timing. He's humble. He's a servant. He's a warrior. We see this moment with, with Goliath when all of the army of Israel are terrified. And David's like, well, if God is on our side, then who can be against us? I'm going to take down this giant. He takes these little uh, stones in a sling, and uh, the, the Bible calls him ruddy, which is, is quite a hilarious phrase for someone who clearly does not look like a warrior. And he goes out and he defeats Goliath, and he trusts in God. And what's more, he makes it all about God. He's like, it, God is with me. God has been with me the rest of my life. Why would he stop now? And we see this amazing story, and it doesn't end there. David starts to naturally become really popular. And Saul, being the jealous guy full of rage, he's furious. And over time, he turns against David. And more than that, he wants to kill David. And so we see this the kind of like game of cat and mouse. As Saul, with his army, is uh, running around Israel after David, trying to put him to death. And there's one particular story that's, um, I think, particularly um, eye-opening for who David is. And um, Saul is taking a number two in a cave, you know, because they didn't have service stations in those days. And, and so he's, he's in a quite a vulnerable situation. And it turns out that David is hi hiding, unbeknown to Saul, in this cave with all of his warriors. And there is this moment, and I, th I think it's his, his, one of his men say to him, David, this is an opportunity. 
You have been, it's been told, it's been prophesied that you will be king next. You could take it right now. And David says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. What he's saying is, I'm not going to rush God's timing. I'm not going to take what is not yet mine. God has promised this. God has said this is going to happen. I believe him and trust him. But I'm not going to force God's hand. And rather than killing Saul, he waits. And there's, there's other, plenty of other opportunities where he could take Saul's life. He says, no, 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 God has made him king. I'm going to wait until God makes me king. And we see this amazing humility, this amazing patience in David. And he's happy to take the role of the least. It's a wonderful example. He's more than that. He's also a worship leader. Like as if he did not have enough wonderful elements to his character. He's like these people who are just infuriatingly good at everything. And, and you're so irritating, but I adore you because you're wonderfully humble at the same time. He's one of those infuriating people. And he's also a worship leader. We, we have pictures of what it means to lead worship. And he goes out in front of his people dancing for joy, unashamed of what people think because he loves Jesus. What a wonderful picture. What could possibly go wrong with this wonderful man of God? Well, David falls and spectacularly. And we, um, I think particularly as churches, we long for nice, neat pictures of what to be like and what to not be like. Okay, so you, you will see in um, church leadership um, seminars and uh, pictures of um, lessons on character and all kinds of lessons, don't be like Saul, but instead be like David. Over and over again, it's a nice, neat lesson. But the reality is the bigger story is it's a more complicated story than that. Because David falls spectacularly. David gives in to complacency, sin, pride, and despair. Um, I'm going to unpack some of these moments, but it's important that we go through this in detail. And if you read Samuel, Samuel begins as quite an encouraging book because you're like, wow, yes, this is great. I cannot be like Saul and be like David. And then it turns. And there's a particular moment in the book of Samuel where it just suddenly becomes quite depressing. And we're going to unpack more of this. So don't despair, but it's about to get a little depressing, okay? So we begin with David the fool. In 2 Samuel 11, it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Job and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now this just seems like the beginning of a chapter of something or another. But it, what's really critical is that first little bit that says in the spring of the year the time when kings go out to battle and basically David doesn't go to battle and the author really very intentionally says that this isn't a mistake to Hebrew readers what they read from this David had a job to do he had a role that God gave him as king as the leader and the spiritual leader of his people to defend his country and he didn't do it and what's more than that we see that a little later on, he commits adultery. And so there are two things to pick up from this. that we can, we can move on from quite quickly, but two things are quite critical. David had a role to do that he didn't do, and David was foolish. As we see later on, this is a man who struggled with temptation, and he didn't do anything about it. There are things he should have done that he didn't do in this moment. And we'll see as we unpack more from later on. So we see David the fool. Second on, we see David the adulterer. When all of his men are out fighting, David, I would assume bored, takes an opportunity to abuse his authority and sleep with a woman who is not his wife and is someone else's wife. 
And this is the moment in which David's entire life changes. This decision he made is the pivot of the whole story. And I think for, for some of us, we maybe have a, uh, you know, we understand what the Bible says about marriage. When I became a Christian at 17, marriage, biblical marriage, was something I did not understand. We live in a culture that does not get the Bible, what the Bible explains about marriage. We have um, sites that are designated purely for having affairs. Um, I heard a song this week, I'm about to quote Demi Lovato, so hang in there. We have a, there's a song I heard this week from Demi Lovato, don't, don't ask how I ended up listening to Demi Lovato, but she says in her song Promises, talking about romantic relationships, promise me no promises. Promise me no promises. What she's saying is the only commitment I'm willing to make is no commitment, Right? And uh, some of you who, you know, you may, maybe you haven't been a Christian for long, or maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you've got friends who aren't Christians, and this is a very common theme. It's why um, the rate of marriage has declined rapidly the last 10, 20 years, because we just don't understand what marriage is. We fear it, we've been hurt by it, it's not worth it. The Bible says marriage is holy. Marriage is a picture of how Jesus loves his church. And covenant, this commitment that a husband and wife make to one another is a glorious picture of how Jesus loves his people no matter what. And this is why this is such a significant moment. That Nathan the prophet, a little later on in the story, confronts David. And he gives a picture of how a rich man took advantage of a poor man. And David, full of righteous anger, says that rich man should die. And Nathan said, you are that rich man. You used your authority and took advantage of this woman and broke something that was holy in God's eyes, which is marriage. And so we see from then on, it leads to many more uh, sins. We see after, after David committed adultery, he um, got Bathsheba, this woman, pregnant. And suddenly David was in a predicament. And so he tried to hide up, cover up his sin. And so what he does is he sends for Uriah, um, Bathsheba's husband, and tries to orchestrate it so that he sleeps with his wife and then it looks like it's, it's his baby. Um, and that doesn't work because, ironically, he's a man of integrity. And he says, no, whilst all of my brothers in arms are out fighting, I will not um, you know, go and spend time with my wife. So David's a bit stuck, and so still desperate, he then sends for his commanders in the army to send Uriah out to fight and to pull back at just the right time so that Uriah dies. He uses his authority to murder Uriah. It just gets worse and worse and worse. David just keeps on digging. I've committed one sin, let's cover it up with another sin, followed by another sin. And this leads to a real downfall. We start to see David has quite a large family, quite a number of um, sons and daughters, and one of his daughters is called Tamar. And one of her half-brothers takes advantage of her and rapes her. And then we see after that, one of Tamar's other brothers kills, called, um, called Absalom, kills the brother who raped her. It's just sin after sin after sin. And the Bible makes it very clear. David, as their father who has not all but some responsibility in looking after his family. He has some responsibility in making sure that his family is peace, is forgiving one another, is not leading to sin after sin after sin. Because if sin is not dealt with, if it's not mediated, if there isn't healing and, and forgiveness, it leads to more sin. How often have we seen that in our lives? Where one sin multiplies and leads to more hurt, more pain, more shame, 
And the Bible makes very clear that David failed as a father, spectacularly as a father. And what's more, Absalom, not only after murdering one of his brothers, he then creates this rebellion against David. And again, the prophet comes to David and says, this is your fault. This is because of your sin. Your failings as a father have led to this. And so we see just a really quite a depressing... I I did give you a warning. It was going to be a depressing story, and it is. And we see that David, who was supposed to be a man after God's own own heart, has, uh, has, has broken his kingdom. We see the kingdom then divides as a rebellion. He sinned against his people, sinned against God, sinned against his family, and abused his authority. This is a really sorry state. But the reality is Christians are broken. Christians may be forgiven. They may know the power of God, but Christians are broken. What hope do we have? If David was supposed to be a man after God's own heart, we can look at this in despair. God, what am I supposed to do? If if my hope is to be someone like David, like, I should give up now. This is awful. But the reality is, I think we can often be let down by Christians when when we put them up to be something they're not supposed to be. I, um, so I became a Christian at 17, and um, I was in a church that was particularly small, and I had a lot of questions about what it meant to be a man, what it meant to do relationships as now as a Christian, because this was all new to me, um, and what it meant to be part of a church. And I found a number of things helpful. I, I had you know, good relationships within that church, but I also had, um, I, I would listen to preachers online, and one of them would be a particular pastor in America, um, and I found his preaching so helpful. It, was, it, it taught me how to unpack the Bible. It taught me how, um, how to be a Christian, how to be a Christian man, how to, um, how to love God and how to love my church. And it was so encouraging um, to the degree where when I did my um, FP year, I took a gap year before university. And for three months, I went and visited their church. And I interned there, and I I just got to see what I'd heard preaching for ages. And I got to see it in the flesh. It was so encouraging. And to this day, there were were lessons that I learned there that have stuck with me ever since. But stories are more complicated than that. Because this pastor then, years later, um, failed epically. The way he was leading his church was not full of grace. And ultimately, this this church just got tore, tore apart. And it broke down. It's quite a large church, and it just it blew up, basically. And it became, and, and it was interesting because I obviously had lots of friends from back there. I saw when I visited again a few years later, I, I, I met so many people who were, who were hurt, who were burnt out, who were um, just so disillusioned with church, and some even with God. And for myself, I was rocked. I, I was like, well, if, if he's screwed up so significantly, do I still trust what he said? I mean, should I keep on loving Jesus? Because I was so encouraged by this man. Like, what do I do with this? And over the years, as I've spoken to more and more Christians, we, we get let down all the time. Maybe it's people who have shown wisdom and kindness and maturity or Christ-likeness. And in one way or another, maybe they've sinned or they've hurt us or, or they've been foolish in one way or another. And so often, heroes of the faith that we look up to we get hurt by. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Too often we let this define our future. I've met countless people who have said, and now I can't do this. 
Now I can't be part of church. Now I can't love Jesus. Because of what this person did, I was betrayed by this person. Crucially, the story of David, as with the story of every other Christian, is not about David. It's not about his accomplishments. It's not about his goodness. It's always about Jesus. It's always about God, about his accomplishments, about his purposes, about his grace. We see that David failed as a king, repeatedly failed as a worshipper, but that didn't prevent God accomplishing works through him. God is gracious. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And that is the moral of the story. That is the lesson that we come away from. Not, wow, David's amazing. Let me be like him and everything will be fixed. No, it won't. We need to trust in Jesus more than anything else, more than anyone else. And this is a lesson that I have to teach myself over and over again. When I trust in people and in one way or another, I feel let down. I have to time and time again go back to the cross and say, Jesus, my hope is in you and not as in this person or any other person. And that's why I have hope in this church as any other church. Because like every other church, it's full of imperfect people. James has said it before and he'd be the first to mention again, I am not perfect. This church does not hinge upon James's success. It hinges upon Jesus. And that's why we have wonderful hope. That's why we can recover from situations where we've been burnt and hurt and frustrated. This church has 40 years of history. That's 40 years of people messing it up. Amen? Some of you have known that. Some of you have lived through that. Some of you have worked through the times when people have done something they shouldn't do or hurt something or, or you know, a, a conversation has gone terribly wrong. We have hope because we know Jesus. This is why this church has hope. This is why every church has hope because of Jesus. This is wonderful. There's, there's one story in Samuel that illustrates this a little bit. There is um, a, a particular time when David says to God, this is before he sins and falls and everything, where he says to God, let me build you a temple. Let me build you a house. I get this cool palace. You have a tent. This isn't right. Let me build you a house, okay? It seems like a logical, nice thing to do. That's a nice thing for David to do. Um, but he goes to God and God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. Partly because I'm God. I, like, I, I don't need, the, the earth is my footstool. I do not need you to build me a temple. What I'm going to do is build for you a house. I am going to give you something. Not, I'm not going to let you give me something because, frankly, I don't really need it. This is more about what I do for you. I, in my grace, am going to make you a house that lasts forever. And he's talking about his family line. He's talking about Jesus. I am going to do through you something that you could never do for me. And that is what grace is all about. We see that through David comes Jesus, his ancestor, who establishes an eternal kingdom, a kingdom way better than anything that David could do. He's a pretty good king, but what Jesus does is significantly better. He's a better king, a better servant, a better warrior, a better husband to his bride, the church, a better leader to his people than David ever was. And so this is why David's story is one of scandalous grace. He was a deeply flawed, imperfect king, but God used him powerfully and did wonderful things through him. And this is, this is how we should always look at Christians who screw up, including ourselves, that we mess up all the time. And the more we read the Bible, the more we become honest with ourselves and honest with God, the more we look at what God requires of us, the more we discover, wow, I regularly mess up, the more we see how wonderful the grace of God is 
that he loves us still, uses us still, that he does perfect things with imperfect people. How wonderful and encouraging this is. We see after David's sin, I alluded to this earlier on, um, Nathan comes to him and, and explains his sin. And after confronting David, David says, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, this, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. This, this may seem like a bit of a, whoa, hang on a second, why are you talking about death here? David knew the penalty for his sin. It was death. And it's the same for us. The penalty for sin is death. The penalty against a righteous and good God who loves justice. It means he can't just be a judge to naughty people, right? He has to be a judge to all people, but to people that we particularly feel are deserving of wrath, deserving of judgment. We have IGM coming in and telling us some horrible stories of people who take advantage of children in horrible ways. It's easy for us to say, yeah, they deserve judgment. The Bible said all have sinned against God. All deserve judgment. All deserve the penalty of death, which is for sin. But what we see here is a picture of Jesus. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. All who trust in Jesus shall not be put to shame. All who trust in Jesus. We sang earlier on, because of your cross, my debt is paid. My sins are washed away. Friends, we are washed of our sin. We are redeemed and forgiven as people. And I'm going to press on this a little more because to actually embrace this grace takes a bit of time. Sin, whether it's sin we've committed or sin that's been committed against us, it damages us. It does stuff to us. We are not, if you like, islands. We are not, you know, unaffected by the things in this world, the things that happen, the things that we do. We're not numb to this world. We are made in the image and likeness of God and therefore we, are, we have, if you like, a sensitivity to sin. We're sensitive to it. We are affected by it. And God's grace heals us. It strengthens us. It gives us hope again. And it cleanses us of all sin. And we're going to press into that a little more. But first I want to unpack this idea of repentance. How does David respond? When he's confronted with his sin, does he act like Saul? Rage, jealousy, denial. Sometimes we do that, right? When the Holy Spirit confronts us with something that's not right in our life, how do we respond? We see that David repents. He recognizes that he's sinned before God and he repents. And what repentance is, is making grace your own. Sometimes, you, you, I mean, like some Christians will say this, and I've said this before, it doesn't matter what I do anymore because grace. And we use it as kind of like, I just, not, I just don't need to think about it anymore. Sin is more complicated because it messes stuff up. And by repentance is actually allowing grace to do its work in our life. What repentance is, um, we'll go through in just a moment, but John Ortberg has a particular quote that I think is really helpful. Repentance is remedial work to mend our minds and hearts which get bent by sin. Repentance is remedial work to mend our minds and hearts which get bent by sin. And, and sometimes I, I wonder, oh man, if only I could see what it looked like for some of these heroes of old to repent. Well, gloriously, we have that. The Bible doesn't hold back on detail. All the gory details of people's failure and then their repentance. And we see in Psalm 51, and unless there's any confusion at all, the title makes it really, really clear. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Like, there's no messing around with that. He's talking about sin. He's talking about David's repentance after this. 
I'm going to read it through as one long psalm first, and I'll step through some particular bits of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know the transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open up my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good, O Zion, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Psalm, one, Psalm 51 is a wonderful picture of what's going on in, God, in David's heart when God confronts his sin. And this is so encouraging. How wonderful is it that a man like David, that he sins he does terrible things and God meets him in powerful and wonderful ways and this is what it looks like to repent and so I'm going to step through some of these um, in little chunks uh, to help us understand what this picture of repentance is number one he appeals we see in verse one have mercy on me O God according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions this isn't about how hard David apologized. This isn't about, you know, I'll be really, really good. You know, I will cover up my sin. We'll do loads and loads of really, really good things. No, he says, God, I can bring nothing to this. I need you. I need your mercy. I need your goodness. I need your grace. Friends, if we wrestle with shame or guilt, it's not because, you know, we need to do something or do this or do that. It's often because we don't know God. We don't know God well enough. When we draw near to God and we're reminded of his mercy and his grace, we know there is hope for me. There is hope for all of us because of his goodness. He appeals to God based upon his promises. Number two, he accepts his sin is against God. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in his sight. David does a whole bunch of stupid things, but one thing he does right, he acknowledges God, all of this is before you. I can't hide this. I can't sex up my sin. I can't cover it up with, well, it wasn't that bad. I was really tired at that particular time. You know, he doesn't give a list of reasons as to why he committed what he did. He says, God, you see everything. You see all of my heart. All of my sin is before you. 
And this is so important to do, not because we really need to constantly be thinking about sin, but because we need to see things as God does. And sometimes we can forget because we can chat to each other and give a half-truth. We've all done it. And, and not give the full picture of really actually how much brokenness, that, brokenness there is going on. But David, David is honest. God, I need you. I'm a mess. Help me, Lord God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He recognizes that God is the ultimate judge. Although in all of these things, he sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, a whole bunch of other people, the whole of Israel. And yet he says, God, against you only have I sinned. Ultimately, the judge who holds everyone to account is God. And he comes to God and is honest. Why? Because he knows who God is. He doesn't come fearful, but he comes honest. This is what it looks like for us to repent. He knows and trusts in the atonement. He knows, God, I come to you and I trust in your goodness. He, uh, he asks for forgiveness. We see in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is a bit of a weird, like I, I have no idea what hyssop is until I looked it up. And it is a funky plant that, gets, that got used in the Old Testament to basically scatter sacrificed animals' blood. Right? Seems like an odd thing to do. Why would you talk about that? It's because these sacrificed animals, the blood of these animals is symbolic of the blood of Christ. It's symbolic of why we are washed from sin. The big word is atonement, that Jesus has taken our sin on the cross. And so he says this, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't that wonderful? That we come to God a mess, stained. You might not look like it on the outside, but on the inside, sin causes a stain on us. Whether it's sins we've committed or sin that's been committed against us. And we leave whiter than snow. Isn't that wonderful news? Doesn't that give hope to those who have come from the most desperate situations? We have a God who gives most amazing forgiveness. Verse 9, hide me from your face. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. We have no need for guilt and shame of anything we have ever done because God chooses to see our sins no, no longer. Isn't that wonderful? It means that when we hold our sins in our mind, whether it's guilt or shame or bitterness or anything like that, when we hold these things and we cling on to them, we're actually disobeying God who said, I have chosen to no longer see them anymore, and so should you. And, and, and this is, it's not like an option of whether you give it away. No, no, no. If God has forgiven you, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Don't like drag around this sin with you anymore because God has forgiven you. God has given you grace and mercy that you never deserved, but he gave freely anyway. And friends, this is why it's so important that we wrestle with what repentance is because we can know grace as just a, a flash in the pan, something that is just a, some, a concept we're aware of. We need this in our lives. It will set us free and give us grace and freedom like nothing else. This is wonderful news. We see that um, David is reconciled. In verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take your Holy Spirit from me. One, one of the effects of sin that I know I'm aware of is when I sin and do something I'm ashamed of, one of the first things to go is my walk with God. I don't want to talk to Jesus. I don't want to pray. I don't want to meet with I don't want to read his word. I just feel ashamed. And wonderfully, what we say, what we see is that David says, God, reconcile me to yourself. Through Jesus, give, I want a relationship with you again. I have done wrong. There is a, if you like, I have in, introduced something between me and you. But God, I want reconciliation with you again. And we have that in Jesus. And finally, and I'm going to finish with this. David leads to worship. 
after all of that David has done, the last thing it seems like David would do is sing again. And yet that's exactly what we see redeemed people doing. We see this, verse 12, restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Do we do this? Is this what our world looks like? When inevitably we do sin, when someone sins against us, do we respond with worship? Do we respond with God, I'm forgiven, I'm clean, I'm reconciled to Jesus, and now I'm going to sing. And I think there's a wonderful, I love this, he says, oh Lord, open my lips. Sometimes, as I've heard before, people say, I, I just can't sing. I can't sing to God. Something that has happened, something that has gone in my life, whether it's I feel separated from God or I feel there's hurt or burdens or shame or something I've dragged into this meeting with me means I cannot sing. And David says, God, open my mouth. God, open my mouth to sing. Worship is not an option. It's not something we may or may not feel like on a Sunday morning. If you have been forgiven, we sing. And that's what we do. And this is why, this is so important. This isn't just done for fun to, you know, make a little bit exciting the word of God. We do this because it's a command of God. It's a wonderful thing. And it's something that makes repentance something that comes to life in our lives. It means that our lives are ones full of joy, full of singing, full of the Holy Spirit, full of his wonderful grace in our lives. And it's, it's tangibly um, made evident through singing. 